Welcome to the Scale Up Valley podcast, where I bring the best founders and investors to help you scale a business from 1 million to 1 trillion. Today's guest is Shane, the CEO at Shemp Titles. Shane, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Really appreciate it, Mike. It's it's my pleasure. You have a, an amazing experience. You have been a founder yourself. Then you have been a large enterprise companies like Cisco. Uh, you've been also in in as a, an investor. Uh, and then in 2018, you have started uh, your second company, uh, Champ Titles. But better than me just describing the um, the, the richness of your journey to be even better if you can just uh, introduce yourself to the community. Sure. Um, I, I don't know um, about the richness aspect, but uh, that's nice <laughs> to say. Uh, yeah. So Shane McGrand Bigelow, I'm CEO and co-founder of Champ Titles. Um, you know, I, I started my first company out of college. Uh, my joke with that one is there's no Ferrari in the driveway because of that company, but you know, I suppose things up ended up uh, ultimately okay, and then went to a, a small public company that uh, we ultimately sold to Cisco Systems, and wound up there. I wound up in a investing arm of Cisco Systems called Cisco Capital. I wound up doing some fairly eclectic things there uh, that got me recruited to Wall Street, and I wound up spending um, a lot longer on Wall Street than I anticipated. But it was a it was a lot of fun. It was with a great firm called Alliance Bernstein. And uh, ultimately left there uh, about five or so years ago to start Champ Titles and uh, and sort of synthesize all of the learnings of the, the past several companies and bring them together to uh, to mm-hmm. create this company. Uh, obviously a little bit different to start a company at, at uh, approximately 41 as opposed to 21, but um, uh, you know my, my family might forgive me one day. <laughs> that that is a great topic to to talk about for the ones who are considering to to start their campus a little bit later but still super young right uh, and but it seems that sometimes uh, in the in the startup startup world when we are 40 it seems that we are already we, we start we need to be investors and mentors of others we can start our own companies anymore however there are studies that shows that the most successful founders the, the are the ones who are at around 40 45 so there is a uh, good indications in 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 that regard but anyway you had you have experience across uh, the US San Francisco East Coast uh, New York Wall Street as you were saying and now you are based in out of Cleveland uh, Ohio right That's right yeah middle of the country um so uh we're in right outside of Cleveland Ohio uh, our office is actually in Cleveland Ohio I live just outside of Cleveland Right. Amazing. Enjoying this uh, after being West Coast, East Coast, uh, being in, in, in the middle of, of, of the country. Any reasons for that or just personal reasons? Uh, well, it, it, my uh, my last uh, company asked me to come out to this part of the country to right. uh, uh, to to work here. Um, and it was a it was a great opportunity for me. But the reason that we stayed is that um, there's there's just a great uh, work ethic and subset of people, um, that are here in this part of the country that, um, uh, I think is a great place to start a company and it's, right. it's quite a bit more affordable than, than the coast, uh, in order to do that. So you can conserve capital a bit, but, 
you know, I did the primary thing I learned between 21 and 41 was at 21, I figured I could do everything. And at, at 41, I realized that the best thing I could possibly do is hire people a lot smarter than me to, um, to work with me and, and tell me all the things I'm doing wrong. Um, you know, uh, they're not, they don't hesitate. They, they tell me all the time, all the stuff I'm doing wrong, but, um, uh, I think that creates a, a much better culture. And, um, and frankly, you know, we could build a really strong team here in Northeast Ohio and, uh, and we're excited to be here. It's a great, it's neat. It's very easy. And I mean, that's a compliment. It's a very easy place to exist. Yeah. On the show, we, we cover founders from all over the world. And that's why I ask this also to give some, some context about the options, also some European founders that are expanding to the U S and are typically thinking about, Boston, New York, and San Francisco, and we are seeing more of them thinking about other cities uh, like Chicago, South Lake City, um, Austin. So other options for them to to expand and, and to start their companies from that are not always New York or San Francisco. And if you are not there, you can build a company. We know with the pandemic, this even accelerated more that you can build a company from anywhere with the remote first companies and so on. And that was the reason why I was also trying to pick your brain um, to why the decision about about Cleveland. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that cities um, <clears throat> like Cleveland uh, get passed over quite a bit by folks that are looking to expand until they start to do more and more research. You know, you see in Ohio, uh, Columbus landed a hundred billion dollar uh, fabrication plant by wow. Intel, and that's you know literally and truly down the street, um, uh, you know, in, in Ohio terms. So the, the benefit, the way I see it is when I moved from New York to Ohio, people used to kind of forget where I was and I'd go back to New York and they'd say, <laughs> where are you? And, and, you know, I sort of got tired of saying Cleveland and people sort of shrugging, like, why would you be there? So I started answering this way. I started saying, well, I'm at this great city. It's got three major sports teams, fantastic water access, amazing infrastructure. Right. Um, it's fantastic. And they're like, oh, what's it called? I'm like, oh my gosh, it's got 15 major universities, 20 <laughs> well, miles. it's got an English speaking <laughs> workforce, really low cost of labor, um, you know, high productivity in the workforce. It's fantastic. They're like, oh my God, what's it called? I'm, I'm like, oh, it's called New Lake City. They're like, New Lake City. I've never heard of New Lake City. I'm like, well, it's also called Cleveland. And okay. you know, that's, that's the thing is that people kind of miss that there are all these wonderful places Absolutely. in the heart of our country that provide fantastic spots to put your company and to expand and find a really fantastic workforce of folks that uh, work really hard every day. And, and, um, and, and, and frankly, you know, a lot less, uh, um, I think a, a, a lot more focus here on what, doing something that's different as opposed to on the coast where, you know, everyone's sort of competing over talent. But and it, it can become also a very competitive, a very important competitive advantage uh, as well, and uh, and quality of life also a, a reason to attract great talent, as you, as you were saying. I think that we need to, however, the macroeconomic conditions are changing now. Uh, the war for talent and great talent will always be there, so we need to be more creative nowadays, right? Uh, and 
and also everything is so much connected and people are missing less the in-person dynamics that you, you are so close to anywhere in the country uh, from there right yeah absolutely. And the first thing that comes to my mind is, is really also the the hospital and, and the health tech center in in cleveland right uh if, if i'm if i'm not being ignorant here <laughs> just putting no you're you're exactly right I and mean, we've got two <laughs> of the top 10 medical facilities in the country here yeah um it's with the cleveland clinic is the famous one exactly. that knows and there's a second one called University Hospitals that, you know, if you put University Hospitals in, <clears throat> in any other city, it would be uh, probably the top rated facility there, but it just happens to get a little bit overshadowed by the, the Cleveland Clinic here, but we're spoiled. It's an embarrassment of healthcare riches here. Um, you have no reason to be sick in Cleveland. Um, you've got all sorts <laughs> of folks that are take care of you. And, uh, and there are two fantastic facilities. And there's the third one, uh, called Metro that uh, does great trauma work too. So you're, it's actually a really great place for people to um, spend the parts of their life. Like I look at parents and older generations where medical needs are, are more um, uh, concerning. It's, it's a great place for, for that generation as well. So now we need to send the bill to the mayor of Cleveland for, <laughs> for dedicating almost five minutes of, of the podcast on why you, you need to start and scale your community yeah. out of Cleveland. And, his his yeah. name's Justin Bibb, and uh, and I'm sure you can find him online. And, uh, you know, he's a great mayor, so I'm sure he'll be happy to pay at least <laughs> at least five dollars for my time. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Shane. And, to, and and during that amazing experience that you had across both sides of of the country, and especially in uh, in, in the last um, decade in, in in New York, and uh, and then moving to to Cleveland uh, with with that firm, and tell us more about what has been the problem that you got obsessed about, and that you really thought it was an opportunity to start Chimp um, Titles. Let us know more about the problem and the story. Of yeah, Titles. yeah, sure. So. You know, going all the way back to the first company, um, I had written an algorithm to help banks more efficiently process their loan and lease portfolios, um, specific really to automotive lending. And <clears throat> when you're in the automotive lending space, you, you start to see the problems that banks have with attaching a lien to their collateral, right? They, they need to show that they have a right to that collateral because they're giving a loan for you to go buy the car. Putting a lien on a title is actually, um, you know, a fairly cumbersome process in most places. So I, I sort of stored that away from 20 years ago, and and then you know, with different experiences on Wall Street and and at Cisco and other places, what I recognized was that um, there there was a sincere lack of ability to for a lot of the world and even places inside the United States to to correctly monetize their assets. So let me give you an example. Um, one time I was in Zambia and we were trying to lend money on some really eclectic assets. The assets happened to be uh, cattle. And part of the problem and one of the reasons we couldn't do the deal is that we couldn't show the correct provenance of that asset, right? Everybody in town knew whose cattle was whose. Nobody knew how to keep track of that right? There wasn't a really good system of record. And so the, the result was that economic progress was prohibited because the folks that owned the cattle couldn't get a loan to go buy more cattle or go buy farm equipment or whatever. And they were relying on mm -hmm. 
nonprofits and NGOs to try to give them money. And that's a slow process that the, 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 the grease uh, within any economic environment is the ability to lever an asset, right? We sort of take it for granted in Europe and the United States because it's so easy for us to go and say, I own this house, I own this car, I own this whatever and get a loan against it so that you can go buy more, right? Now this, I'm not mm -hmm. advocating for putting people on tons of debt or anything. What I'm saying is just the basic principle of getting a loan. Right. And that's hard to do in lots of the, and lots of the world. Um, well, if you extrapolate back that back to the US, it's not as hard here, but there's a ton of friction in the process of getting loans. Um, you know, there's paperwork, there's fees, there's a slow pace of, of uh, being able to title that asset correctly, get that asset in your name correctly. All of that friction creates higher expenses in order to do something that you should be able to do at a really basic level with something that you own. And so that that problem was one that really bothered me on Wall Street because I was looking at this, you know, these loans we we're trying to do in Zambia mm -hmm. and other parts of the world, and we we're trying to help people. We we're trying to give them a way to expand um, their economic success more quickly, and we couldn't. We couldn't get it done. Um, and so fast forward a little bit uh, later, when I met my co-founder, who was a, a large automotive retailer. You know, he was saying, hey, this is all these problems with, with selling cars. And it's only going to get worse when you sell cars online because car dealers used to sell cars in a tiny little radius around their dealership, mm -hmm. you know, two, five, 10 miles, maybe. The, the average online car sale is now 900 miles from the dealership that was inventorying the car. Wow. So now the titles have to move between multiple states just to you know, right. make the transaction occur. The complexity is going through the roof and there's no infrastructure to be able to handle it. So we looked at this and said, well, wait a minute. We understand auto. We understand lending. We had folks, you know, have a great CTO that came from the banking world and the retail world. He, he understands this fantastically well. He was our very first employee. And to the point of hiring people a lot smarter than me, he's, he's the prime example. Um, and, you know, we were able to, bring together a team that said, okay, we understand the automotive space. Can we do this really well in the United States, the most high, highly regulated market in the world? And can we maybe one day then take it to the rest of the world? And right now we're in that US phase and it seems to be working. That sounds amazing. And to, to include the ones who are not so familiar with, with the language and what are titles, um, can you just explain what is what is a title uh, to ensure that everyone is following the, the conversation? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Sorry, I didn't mean to gloss over it. So, yeah. you know, titling an asset goes all the way back to, um, I think I looked this up once, maybe what the earliest title was, but think of like the most rudimentary way that a king or a queen might establish ownership. They have like a wax stamp that they would put on an on a document and they would certify it with their stamp. And that stamp was indicating that they owned that particular asset or they vouched for that particular asset or the sale of that asset to a you know a a lord or somebody underneath them or whatever. And and so that document was kind of a first version of a title. Um at what the way that's played out over time is that generally speaking in developed nations, homes and cars are the two dominant assets that right. carry titles with them. They're typically a piece of paper that indicates your ownership. And somewhere you hope 
that piece of paper is recorded on a system of some sort uh, so that in the event you lose the piece of paper, someone can recover it. That's not always the case. <laughs> there are still places that don't do that, believe it or not, and they're relying on really good fire protection systems, I suppose. But the reality is that that's how antiquated the titling system is in right. even the United States, where it's a very developed and, and functional um, you know, market for, for those assets. Amazing. Thanks for, for clarifying, uh, Shane. And in terms of who is your ideal customer profile? So who are, are you delivering this, this, um, this solution and this product for what segment of the market? Well, the, the, the primary buyer uh, for us uh, and the primary um, entity for whom we build technology is, is for DMVs, so Departments of Motor Vehicles. We, we build the, the technology for them to replace their aging title and registration systems. So I mentioned that, you know, some of these things might be on paper. Most of them are on 40 to 50 year old mainframes and they're, they don't work very well. And there's even the people that can fix them or work in them are starting to literally and truly die. They're, they're not, they don't exist anymore. And so Moving states over to you know a SaaS-based platform, cloud-based te technology, um, clearly is a is a benefit to you know all of the underlying constituents that have to use this system, like car dealers, insurance carriers, fleet operators, lenders, and ultimately the consumers who might own the asset. So. The, the that's our target market is to go after these DMVs. And, you know, I think over time that market expands into, you know, potentially countries that might look for a system of record when they have none for any, any asset. Right. Those are generally more in, in the developing world as opposed to the developed world. Uh, but right now we're squarely focused on DMVs. Got it. And in terms of the stage of growth, uh, Shane, where are you in terms of funding round, size of the team, uh, stage of growth of the company, just to give context for, for the ones who are uh, listening? Yeah, sure. So we've we've gone through our Series B. We've raised a little over 30 million in total. Um, uh, so, you know, we, we uh, have had a few rounds of funding at this stage uh, between the initial uh, money that my co-founder and I put in and then um, you know, some seed investors, series A, series B, um, the, uh, the size of the company, um, we're about 60 people. Um, so it's a, you know, fairly robust size for a young company. Um, you know, we, uh, uh, we should be, you know, profitable next year. So we're, we're at that fun stage where you go from, you know, hoping people, uh, believe what you're telling them and then try out your product. And now there's enough people trying it out and not just trying it, but using it and hopefully becoming, um, you know, quite addicted to the the benefits of it uh, that we should turn into profitability fairly squarely um, next year. So it's an exciting time for our company. Right. Something super important, especially for uh, second and first time founders, it's really uh, having an amazing product, solving an amazing problem, a huge market opportunity, but also having the goal to market right. Uh, and, and there is something interesting that um, you shared with me when we started sh uh, chatting about champ titles, which was the reason why don't you sell the a SaaS solution to governments and uh, and the way you thought about your go-to-market or your distribution uh, strategy, right? 
Yeah. So I think one of the big problems um, in in our country is is sort of this ridiculous division between you know sort of the right and left uh, political parties. Um, when the vast majority of people are actually in the middle, right? There's like 70% of the people <laughs> are in the middle and 15% of the right or left are sucking all the air out of the room. And, you know, as a citizen of my great country, it drives me absolutely insane. Um, and, you know, I'm a fiscally conservative, socially liberal kind of guy. So my view is I don't want to take any money from the government because that money is ultimately my money and my neighbor's money. It's taxpayers' money. And so when we set out to build this company and we were realizing that, you know, we would be contracting ultimately um, either directly or with our partners with the government, one thing that is is core to our belief here is that um, we should get paid for performance, not just for launching a system, but for the system actually doing what it's supposed to do. And this is very contrary to the typical government contracting model. The typical government contracting model is find the government that has the biggest budget, convince them to sign it over the biggest check, roll something out in four to six years, and then at year 10, convince them to renew because you're not quite done yet. And it's it's an absolutely absurd way for taxpayers to be taken advantage of, in, in my view. I think it's unfair. Um, so we set out and said, you know what? The better way to do this would be charge the government nothing. And we'll build technology that truly solves the problems of the constituents of government. And those constituents, again, are the, the car dealers, the insurance carriers, the fleet operators, the lenders. If you solve their problems, and they all have problems as it relates to title and registration, that all it, all of the, the issues slow up their business and cause them to be um, right. less profitable or charge more for their product that ultimately hurts the consumer. If you can solve those problems for them by providing better technology through the government, then those constituents will use that service and will get paid only when they use that service. And I think governments are finding that to be compelling. I think it's fair. It puts our skin in the game. We have to be right. We can't, we can't get it wrong because then people won't use our product and we won't get paid. But I think that's how most government contractors should work. I don't, I think this, this is kind of lunacy that the government has to pony up and hope that you work. They it should work the other way around, at least mm -hmm. to, to to some extent um, for for a lot of products like the the types of ones that we're rolling out in this you know SaaS world. Love love the approach. In terms of business model, how does that work for for the the car dealers, the lenders, the fleet operators that that you were talking? Yes, so they'll they'll pay their their normal fees to the the state. And um, there could be an additional transaction fee or of some sort um, uh, attached to uh, that particular statutory transaction. And that additional fee comes to us, right? So sometimes it, it, it's a, it shows up as an additional fee. Other times it's just baked in. And ultimately, we're getting paid through that statutory fee or, or um, the transaction fee. Right, so it's much more as, as much they need to re register vehicles or to go through the mm -hmm. registration process uh, as much as they will pay, or as much as they use the product, uh, more they will pay. Right, so which which goes around the the performance um, model that that you were just sharing before. Yeah, and the the users of the system are the ones that are paying for it. Right, so mm -hmm. why should a taxpayer in a state that owns one vehicle for 20 years pay the same amount as someone who owns 100 vehicles in 10 years. 
right? It doesn't make any sense. You, you're, you're paying the same amount of tax uh, if you're making the same amount of income. And so ultimately, you know, you're, you're paying more for a system you don't use. Instead, the, the users, the people who are buying or selling cars, the insurance carriers who have to buy a car from a policyholder on a total loss, the lenders who want to show ownership of that vehicle via the loan they've provided, they pay. And the people that are the recipients of the, um, of the asset, it, you know, ultimately, um, they're, they're generally regulated fees that, that flow through to them as documentation fees as well. So it's, a, I think, a much more fair and equitable way to do it. Um, uh, the users wind up being the ones that pay. And the state gets a brand new system. The consumers and the constituents get a, a much easier way to do business. Ultimately, um, they should all make more money and be more profitable and enjoy the experience a lot more. Yeah. So and, and in theory, all makes a lot of sense, but we know that then execution is much more complex and we need to change some of the habits of the past and to introduce uh, the new. And uh, as you said in our previous conversation, the first reaction to new, to new is, is no, right? So how has been that process of evangelizing and showing a new way of being much more effective, much more productive, um, uh, and beneficial for for the companies that you are serving and, and for the government as well yeah you know there's um uh when i worked at cisco there was a, a fantastic ceo at the time his name is john chambers he's relatively famous uh, yeah um he i remember him walking into a sales meeting once and and i was sitting alongside the sales team as as kind of the investor guy that was doing stuff with them and he walked in and he said I, I love this team. You guys, you're women too. It wasn't, I can't remember exactly what pronoun he used. You all uh, hear no from a, a customer or potential customer, and you treat it like it's a stumbling block on the way to yes. And that stuck with me. I mean, I think I was 27 or something at the time. And, uh, you know, nearly 20 years later, it's a core value at Champ right? That you're going to hear no when you invent something, right? We invented something, it's patented. People didn't think it was possible. Still people that know it's in the market and know it works will still say, we don't know if this is possible, which blows my mind. It's like, that's like saying, I don't think Tom Brady can win a Super Bowl. Well, it turns out he can. And there's a lot of proof that he can. And same with our system. Our system works and it works really well. But nonetheless, you know, you hear no all the time when you have something new, when you've done something that people haven't seen before. And um, we have to have a culture of treating no like it's a stumbling block on the way to yes. And I credit John Chambers with uh, with that inspirational um, you know, message. Yeah. Uh, great uh, inspiration for the core values and, and to build a, a strong culture and especially to be able to be innovative and to bring innovation to the market, right? Because again, as, as we were discussing before, uh, it is it is great to invent the new, but then implementing the new is, is the most complex job. And again, it's amazing to have a great product, but if we are not able uh, to go to go to markets with that product, uh, it doesn't matter, right? So, so that that component of the culture is is super important that that you just mentioned. And in terms of the the founding team, something that I found super interesting about uh, about Champ Titles is that you have that you are two co-founders, as you said, 
Um, but instead of having the typical uh, business co-founder and technical co-founder, uh, you have a, a chairman and the CEO yourself, and uh, and you have hired your your CTO as as the first employee uh, of the company. Tell us more about about the story, uh, how we came you came together to build Shem Titles, why you decided to build the founding team in in this way, and and uh, also how it has been the process because we know some investors want to see uh, the CTO in the founding team uh, but you were able also to fund the, the the initial stage of the company how has been that initial uh, milestones of uh, of building the team and starting to build a product etc yeah you know our our origin is a little bit different um relative to our funding needs so as i mentioned my my co-founder who's who's not operating the business he's uh, he's currently chairman of the board um you know he did really well as an automotive retailer um you know i had a i had a pretty good run on wall street and the 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 benefit we had going into starting this company was that we didn't need outside funding right we could we could write a fairly large check um, to get the 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 company going. So we weren't in the typical situation of um, you know a young company looking for seed funding or or startup funding um, uh, where you know the team had to be assembled already. Right, we we had the the luxury of being able to spend our own capital to to get this going. Maybe it's one of the benefits of doing it in your forties instead of your twenties, but. Um, <laughs> Uh, so we, 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 we wrote that first check. Unless you have been always in startups and you were not able to find a new one, you are still need the pre-seed round in your forces, right? Yeah, that's true. That, that's a very good point. Yeah, that's a very good point. Um, so maybe you have to leave to come back. I don't know. So, um, uh, so we, we were very fortunate that we could be able to do that. And that allowed us to be able to get lucky enough to, um, have uh, our CTO uh, Boshim be our our first employee, and you know he's as much responsible for the success of the company as uh, as as any of us. Um, uh, just just uh, you know we we just had the idea, and then um, he's really built a fantastic team, um, and we continue to expand that team. Um, uh, you know, around him and and his his technology prowess, and you know, we know enough to be dangerous um, from the non tech side of things. Um, but the uh, the reality is that you know the technology is sophisticated. Um, it does require um, you know a high level of aptitude. So we are, I think, known at least locally because we hire most people locally here in Ohio. We're known for having a, a very high bar. Um, it, it is not easy to get a job here. Um, we, we do a, a, sort of a ridiculous number of interviews and, uh, personality profile testing and cognitive testing and a lot of things that companies our stage maybe wouldn't do, but we have, you know, very high expectations of the people that join. And, and that really started with, with our CTO, you know, he was, we had very high expectations for him. And uh, he has very high expectations for for the team, and uh, we're very lucky to have him. Yeah, and typically uh, at this stage, of course, post Series B, um, you already have a, a leadership team, a full leadership team in in place. 
though you guys are being capital efficient and and making sure that you don't over hire for your stage of growth. So I think it's super healthy to have sixty people at uh, at Series B. We know that some companies go a little bit crazy and uh, are too big, too too early. And the market is correcting them now, but it seems that you guys always had the fundamentals. Um, in place, uh, how did you organize the the rest of the leadership team? So, what are the positions and roles that you have apart from uh, yourself as the CEO and and having the the CTO as as your first employee, as as you said? Yeah, I, you know, I, I I'm not sure that we always. Um... I'm not sure that we haven't been addicted to the same drug from time to time of hiring. <laughs> right. So it's, I think that's a very common to, to have that kind of comments. So thank you for yeah, that. It's yeah. Fairly common issue. Yep. Maybe maybe we're lucky. Same that... year, uh, as an advisor, I have also incentivized companies and CEOs to hire to too early. Uh, also super excited about let's go big and and yeah, maybe I have not been the, the, the best advisor. So also to to be candid and honest and vulnerable as you as you did, uh, I'm also joining you on that. <laughs> well, yeah, I am. You know, I think any of us have done this a few times, um, recognize that it's a fairly common thing that happens. And, you know, you get excited about your own idea. If you're an entrepreneur, then you don't believe um, that the glass is just half full, but 95% full, <clears throat> you're probably not going to make it. <clears throat> so exactly. you, you're, you're permanently well. in this mode of this is going to work. And so hiring more people doesn't seem like a bad idea until you run out of money. And then it's a really bad idea. So, <laughs> exactly. Um, we need to extend run away where we'll find that bridge. <laughs> now we right. don't have the metrics to find the bridge. Oh, oh well. <laughs> so I, we're, we're very fortunate to have a group of, of investors who share our same, you know, fiscal prudence and, and, and want us to be the shepherds of capital that, um, that I learned how to be on wall street right shepherds of somebody else's capital i'm going to take it as if it's my own money and we try to have all the people at, at champ treat everything here as as if it's their own money right right down to the you know the coffee in the kitchen um all the way to the the next latest macbook pro that we're buying somebody or something so you know the i think that's part of it in terms of building the team it was crucial to 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 create a team that um, had that same culture and mindset. We've got, you know, a, a great head of strategic relationships um, who, you know, just understands how to work well with our partners and with our government customers. Um, you know, it's a very different cadence uh, working with government or even the, the large um, partners to government. Um, than you would see in the typical enterprise community. You know, as I as I joke, we're we're not selling wine online. Um, you know, there's <laughs> there's some there's some really sophisticated political issues that can occur, and you know, all of that happens while you're trying to build software. So it's um uh it's a it requires some some great uh, adept um relationship handling, and and um, we're lucky to have uh, a gentleman there that does a great job. Similarly, our head of operations, um, uh, she is just, um, you know, bulletproof when it comes to organization, which, uh, you know, I'll, I'll be guilty again, not my strong suit. Um, it <laughs> sounds like it's organized in my head, it, it, like it looks organized in my head, but I'm not sure it always comes out in an organized way. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, we needed her to bring that rigor to us because, um, you know, when you go from 
an idea to you know a, 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 a demo to a, an actual first working version of a product to a scalable product to now we have legacy products, which I mean, that seems weird to me that we actually have products that are legacy products. It, it's a lot to manage and the organizational requirements are, are key there. And, and, you know, we've got fantastic now controller um, and uh, head of HR, right? So those two roles were crucial as we got bigger, where we said, you know what, <clears throat> let's make sure that we're, we're really, mapping out our contracts that are complex correctly and getting our cash flows correct and managing our capital as prudently as possible. And, and at the same time, giving our people the, the resource that they need uh, from a human capital perspective and looking at our, our people as our biggest asset, which they are. And, and the, the, because they're our biggest asset, they needed ahead of human capital. And, and so spending some time and energy and money on that at this stage is, maybe a little more rare, um, but we feel it's the right, the right way to build a, a team that's very happy to be part of, um, part of champ titles. And in terms of the CTO, do you also have product or the CTO kind of does CPTO? Uh, do you have a, anyone else in, in revenue kind of VP sales or VP customer success or something like that? Or it also depends of course on your business and, and, and the structure needed, but well, you know, um, our our CTO is also our CPO. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, you know, and I, I think uh, um, it, it's a luxury it, when you are able to find someone who is able to to play both roles, right? Yeah, yeah, no, uh, absolutely. Um, you know, we've got a really strong team around him as well that. Um, Exactly. Uh, he does a fantastic job with, you know, our architecture, our cloud approach, our, you know, uh, productizing um, of, you know, you know, what we've, what, what was initially in our patent and now is, you know, a, a, a set of real systems deployed in the real world with, with actual users and customers and the like. Um, so the, the team is really strong. Um, it's just a great group, you know, um, uh, in terms of, uh, I think there was a second part to your question, Revenue, the, yeah. the sales team, it really, really thin sales approach, right? We, we, we look at our world as a channel world, right? I, I have this theory that, um, everybody likes to say that they want to do business with a young company, but no one actually wants to do business with a young company. They, they want to say they do to sound innovative or to pretend to be innovative. But at the end of the day, most people at most places just want to work with a big company because it's job protection. And I get that. It's totally understandable. And when you're yeah. dealing with government or insurance carriers or banks, right. generally you're not going to find people that are like, yeah, let's just try out this, you know, five-year-old company from Cleveland. What could possibly go wrong? Right. So right. I, I think, so we partner with really big entities um, <clears throat> that are the gold standards in each of those verticals to deliver our products to government um, for, for them to replace those aging title and registration systems. So we, we don't do this alone. We have a very partner-centric approach, which is another thing that um, came from my, my Cisco days and Latitude right. Communication days, and even, even my Bernstein days. We were all very channel-focused channel, channel uh, focused entities. Again, the importance of, of go-to-markets. Uh... And sometimes it's it's super difficult to do it very early, and it seems that you were able to, to do it super early to be able to get to the market in a much more effective way, right? 
uh yeah it, it feels like we're uh um we're we're we were able to do that and uh, but we've got a lot more proving to do that's for sure <laughs> and just uh, jumping to, to the fundraising topic so you told us you have raised the uh, in september of 22 a 12.9 million uh dollar b round and also you kind of skip it pre-seed by investing your own capital uh, of the founders on on the business so uh, you also have a background on 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 investment and uh, on uh, on fundraising, so you understand well uh, what an investor wants to see in terms of metrics, in terms of story narrative. But any lessons learned that you'd like to share with uh, with other peers that are listening to the show uh, of this stage, for, let's say from seed to to Series B? Uh, well, you know, I, I, because of the my background, I have raised a good bit of, of money over, over time from a, a wide variety of, of different investors. And, um, I, I think the, 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 key, the biggest key is that it's really easy to geek out about your product and you want to be really proud of your product, but, um, I'm not sure investors, generally want to geek out with you about your product they, they want to understand how you're going to make money how you're going to re return capital to them and to their stakeholders and so just like we try to solve the problems of government by solving the problems of the constituents i think when you're pitching investors and i'm not sure i've got this perfect by any measure but i think generally you have to look at the incentives of your investors right a professional vc firm has limited partners well, what other limited partners want to see? If you provide that, then your VC will be happy. If you have a strategic, well, what's the goal of your strategic? Is it to be close to you? Is it to be the first to consume your technology and market? Is it to have an exclusive? Again, once you know their incentives, you can know what to provide them. And what I find is that a lot of entrepreneurs that you know approach me or or um, you know, we, my co-founder and I invest through our family offices as well. What I often find is that they come and they want to really talk about how great their product is. And it's like, yeah, but tell me more about the business and how you're going to make it profitable and how we're going to have right. an exit one day. And what does that mean for, you know, my constituents or my family? Like, what, what does it mean for them? What, how do I monetize this money that I'd be giving you and wanting to get back in, you know, 5, 10, 15, mm -hmm. 20 X? It's the same when you're raising money for, you know, a series A, series B company, you know, your, your investors, whether they're VCs, family offices, strategics, they all have different incentives. And if you don't align yourself with those incentives, the expectation that they'd write you a check at a reasonable valuation is false, right? You, you have to align yourself with those expectations. And then when you find people that under, that have similar, you know, mindsets to you when you align yourself with those expectations you probably wind up with a, a much more fair valuation and everybody's happier right great great summary for a very uh open uh question and um we know that that you you are thinking about in terms of of the future thinking about the future before going to the last segment of the show where we kind of do a ping pong of quick questions and answers but you you were saying that you will not stop with the the titles of vehicles um so you you will want to expand to other assets and also other geographies we also know the importance of focus uh but 
what would you like to to share with the audience about the the future that you have envisioned for Shemp titles? Well, I, a big part of um, starting this company is is what we can do to to give back to. Um, you know, I think it's it, it sounds a little bit um, I don't know, almost childish to say, but like to give back to the world. And our little way of doing that um, started by trying to improve government for those constituents and do so without charging government. The The next way is to allow the constituents to expand their economic prowess all the way down to the consumer by being able to do more with these assets, right? So if you, if you correctly title an asset, think about cars, what's going to happen with cars? Well, eventually I could see a world where some people will own cars, but a lot of people will have a subscription to a fleet of cars. Some people might have a shared ownership in cars. Other people might um, have, you know, automated vehicles just coming and beckon and they beckon them and they come and pick them up and take them places and you pay a fee for that. Those different ownership structures for vehicles, yeah. that's the first material change since the Model T. And so with that, there's all these sort of micro uh, ownership transitions that occur. And, and being able to facilitate that with a good record of provenance will enable a lot more commerce to occur on top of something like vehicles. But it could also happen with cattle, with art, with gold, with other physical assets that are movable throughout the world. And the goal of our company is to be the world's movable, the world's asset registry for movable assets. And so in order to do that, we're gonna focus really hard on being really good here in the US market um, and building great technology for DMVs, but it can expand well beyond that. And uh, I sincerely believe it will. What a great way of wrapping up uh, with with the vision uh, of the company and also combining the, the mission and the vision uh, of the company in, in the same statement. So let's go to, to the last segment uh, where I ask you a quick question and we kind of do here uh, a ping pong of quick questions and answers. So if you'd have the opportunity to have a, a coffee with yourself in 2018, what advice would you offer to your younger chain? <laughs> um work out more <laughs> um <laughs> you're got you're going to gain weight from uh stress and lack of activity <laughs> um, um probably uh buy more cuban cigars when they were legal um uh <laughs> and then i think from a um you know from a, a business standpoint uh trust your gut faster Right. It, 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 a lot of times you start to question yourself and all you do is waste time and money and, you know, fail fast. Um, you know, it was one thing we, we probably said it a lot in 2018. Mm -hmm. Not sure we did it until and got good at it until 2020, 2021. Um, but fail fast and not just say it, but mean it and do it. Love it. And what are you the most proud of on your journey so far? It, it it's this is easy it's this team I mean, we've just got a fantastic team um it, you know right down to um you know the newest employee i feel really proud of the the people that have joined us and and very fortunate that 
Uh, I get to come to work and spend time with them and see them take our little idea and turn it into something much bigger. Um, that that's what I'm proudest of that we've assembled a team that, you know, is better at this than, um, you know, I ever could be, uh, as, as one of the founders. So that's, that's the easy one. It's the team. And the way you almost started, uh, worst advice ever received it. Worst advice ever received. Uh, <laughs> it, somebody, uh, when I, uh, when I got out of college, um, they said, don't start your company. You're crazy. Um, why would you ever do that? You could have all these great jobs and all sorts of security. And, you know, I still think back to that and I still don't understand it. You know, my diet back then consisted of craft dinner and ramen. If I completely <laughs> screwed up the first company, I'd have to go down to just ramen. There's not a, there's not a, you don't really fall back too far at that age. And so, um, had I not done that, I wouldn't have probably done this. And I, that was the worst advice someone ever could have gave it. I'm so glad I didn't follow it. Amazing. And it decided to do it uh, now with, with, with starting another company, right? <laughs> yeah. Exactly. A little bit more to lose now. The, exactly. the, my, my tastes were a little higher than just crafting her and ramen. So, well, yeah. then <laughs> uh, let's go to the resources. Your favorite book, business or non business, you decide. It's much more to get to know you. Um, I, you know, I, I, There's a book that I, I always find compelling. Uh, it's called The Monk and the Riddle by Randy okay. Commissar. Um, that's, a, that's an old favorite. There's a new book uh, a friend of mine wrote, a guy named John Giganti wrote a book called With Intention. And I think, you know, as a leader of a company, thinking about how to lead with intention and how to come to work every day with intention and all the things behind that, um, he wrote a magnificent book that, um, I think every business Maybe. leader should read. Great additions to the list. Thank you for that. And favorite movie or series, as you wish? All the James Bond movies. Like I'm a total <laughs> sucker for anything James Bond. Um, it's like... Uh, Doing the impossible as, as a founder, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, uh, you know, plus martinis i mean it doesn't it, what's wrong with james bond martinis <laughs> exactly. guns you great know style. beautiful <laughs> women great style it's a gamble all the time fast cars i mean it's a it's boy heaven so exactly and finally your favorite podcasts excluding this one i was going to include this one uh, <laughs> uh, i'm here this is my favorite one um Uh, you know, it's, it's a little embarrassing. I don't spend a ton of time, uh, on, on too many podcasts, That's fine. Um, yeah. uh, but I, 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 I do really enjoy like thematically the ones that are focused on, on scale. Um, uh, so it, I know it's, it sounds, uh, like I'm just floating your boat, but I, I am very serious about it. It's, it's fun to talk about. It's, it's, it's great that you're, building this and and supporting this community of of growing entrepreneurial endeavors thank you shane i really appreciate it and thanks again for making the time to be with us and to share your journey and and, and your thoughts and uh, we wish you all the best in the next chapters and you are always invited to to come back to to share the progress thanks again, thank you I'd, i'd love to you're very kind thank you very much
And to the community, thanks for being there. We keep bringing you the best of the best to make your life a little bit easier as you scale up your company. See you soon and keep scaling.